This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Parables of Jesus Revisited. An innovative approach to understanding and interpreting the parables. And the author is William F. Beckgard, and Bill joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bill. Hi, how you doing? Well, good to have you with us. This is going to be uh, quite a discussion about a subject that has a lot of different viewpoints about how to interpret the parables of Jesus and what they mean. Let me read what you've written about your book. The Parables of Jesus Revisited is a common-sense approach to understanding the parables. It discards the use of allegorical interpretation and keeps to the literal meanings of the elements of the parables. By using a literal system of interpretation, the parable lessons become clear, consistent, and free of hidden mystery. Well, there's probably those who would differ with you, wouldn't they? Oh, yes, yes. It's surprising uh, when I speak to my peers about this. Um, they seem to be pretty well entrenched in opinion, uh, which I don't blame them. And the, they seem to have kind of a, if I can express it like this, a love affair of uh, allegorizing, uh, bringing out um, uh, old double meanings and... and, and uh, 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 hidden lessons, which uh, don't always uh, work. But then on the other hand, uh, I have received some very good comments from my peers saying, you know, this this really makes sense. And some of them have e- even expressed uh, the aha emotion. <laughs> <laughs> aha, yes, yes. Well, yeah. Bill, tell us about your background and why you wrote this book. Well, I was... Uh, I was in the Coast Guard in Hawaii, and that's where I was saved. I came to know the Lord. Um, I, my life really turned around at that point, and as I expressed in, the, in, in my book, uh, uh, there was a void, an emptiness that was filled. Uh, I always felt it, but I didn't know what it was, and it was God. Well, I had a, a, a real deep desire to study his word, which I did, and I had some excellent pastors who were good teachers, very skillful, knowledgeable, and uh, oh, a few years after I was saved, I felt the call to preach, so I went to seminary, and, and while I was in seminary, I pastored a small church in Wilmington, California. Uh, then that church merged with a church in Carson, California, and I pastored there. So I pastored a total of 34 years, and I always felt that my strong suit was not preaching, but more along the lines of teaching. And, of course, uh, the parables, there's always great interest in, in, in the parables. So 
uh, I had put together a series of lessons on them, and they were very well received. The people were happy, and I've discussed it with others. And I felt that uh, the material was of value and interest and, and perhaps helpful to others uh, to put it in a book. That kind of gives the background of, of myself and, and how I wrote the book. Well, let's start with the very basic question. What is a parable? Well, a parable is a story, and there's some good authors who, uh, theologians, that define it, but simply put, it's, it's, it's one truth cast along a side of another truth to illustrate that second truth, to bring out meanings or emphasis on, on, uh, on the truth being taught about. It, it's something that's cast alongside so that it, it reflects on, on what it is being compared to. Now, Jesus taught this way because those who were humble and teachable would listen, but those who, uh, in my mind, unless this is what I've always gotten out of that, is that those who had pride and were set in their ways, they wouldn't understand. No, they, 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 they would have a very difficult time, and it's, it's, it's really a matter of being closed-minded and, and, and prejudiced. Uh, but that's not to say that, that Jesus uh, did not deal with them and did not teach them. Uh, there are a few parables that were expressly given to them, and I think it was for their benefit. I don't think that uh, the, the Lord really just, uh, you know, cut them off and, 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 and just totally forgot about them. Uh, certainly, they were loved by the Lord, and I think their welfare was a concern of his. But for the most part, uh, he he was addressing either general audiences or specifically his disciples. Well, very good point. Uh, why have you departed from this mainstream of interpretation of the parables? Well, the mainstream system of interpreting the parables is to make it, to allegorize uh, the elements in the parables or the parables themselves. Now, an allegory is where uh, one thing stands for another. Uh, in my book, I mentioned about General B in the Battle of Manasseh, or Bull Run, the first battle, and how General B wanted uh, General Jackson to advance and, and to attack. He, he was uh, situated on a hilltop, and apparently he gave the order, but Jackson didn't move, and Parable said, well, look at Jackson, he's standing there like a stone wall. Well, that's an allegory, but what was meant by that, uh, some interpreted, well, it was a criticism against Jackson because he refused to advance. Others said that it was a complimentary, that he was holding firm. Now, uh, uh, who can say exactly which meaning is accurate? It's only in the mind of General B, and he never explained it. So when you when you allegorize, unless the allegory is explained to you or it is evident by its context, you really don't know what's in the mind of the person who spoke it. So consequently, when men, uh, theologians or pastors, whatever, uh, begin to allegorize, you know, the stories, uh, uh, it's it, it's a guess. 
because uh, Jesus gave the story, but he never explained it. So you can come up with all kinds of meanings to um, words and phrases and, and, and the elements. Uh, and so in my exposure to uh, being taught, I found that these allegories were very often contradictory both to the story, to the general um, uh, gospel itself, and that they were not consistent and that they were inconsistent. So there was a lot of trouble there. So I thought about it, and I thought, you know, if you just take these things literally and do not use allegories at all, suddenly they all made sense. And they became very simple, and there was there was the, no mystery or hidden elements to it. Bill, your book, I see, contains 21 parables. Let's look at one and go into some uh, detail and point out the this confusing allegory and the simplicity, as you're pointing out, of the uh, real message. The parable of, of the leaven is, is a great example of uh, allegorizing. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leaven. There's two basic uh, interpretations of this parable using the allegorizing. Uh, the first is, is that uh, uh, the leaven is, is a good thing. It represents, uh, uh, I seem some, some have said it represents the church, the kingdom of heaven, or, 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 or the gospel in general, Christianity. And that the meal is the world. So that uh, uh, the kingdom of God is inserted into the world and eventually the whole world becomes as the kingdom of God. Uh, so it permeates throughout the world till it's, 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 it's complete. The other interpretation is that the leaven is evil, uh, something wicked, and that the meal is the kingdom of, of God or the kingdom of heaven and that the actions, uh, that the woman is, is a wicked woman, an evil woman, and so that she uh, took this leaven, which is evil, and she hid it in the uh, kingdom of God, and eventually the, 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 the meal becomes totally leaven, so the kingdom of God becomes totally leaven or, or evil. But if you look at both of those and you draw them out to their conclusions, they don't work because uh, uh, certainly the gospel, even though it's spread throughout the world, doesn't permeate the world and, and the world doesn't become like the gospel. And then on the other hand, to say that uh, the kingdom of God is going to be totally corrupt at some point in the future is, uh, is also wrong. Um, the fact, uh, if, if we just take it literally, the leaven is leaven, the woman is a woman, and her actions are, are, are typical of housewives uh, making leavened bread. And uh, as far as uh, the word hid can also be mean uh, in the Greek uh, as to mix. But if a woman is making leavened bread, how else would she insert the leaven into the meal where it wouldn't be hid? So there's nothing really mysterious about that. Uh, 
I think that the whole key to this parable uh, comes down to that one small four-letter word, till. And I believe what Jesus is teaching is that the kingdom of God is going to take time until it reaches its conclusion or, 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 or its intended purpose. And so um, uh, there was uh, nothing really mysterious about this. It's just the kingdom of God is going to, going to take time to develop. You say you don't want to be disrespectful to anyone of disagreement, but your book is uh, just simple reading. It makes sense, and giving in time, like you said before, people get the aha response. Yes, aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, it, so it does challenge the old school. Well, it does. I, 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 I think, I think one of the, I think the greatest natural asset that God has given man to all men is is their mind, their brain, the ability to think. And yet it's amazing how how much uh, we don't think, uh, how little at times we do use our mind. And 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 the, the Bible is the word of God and it's a bridge between the mind of God and and and, and our mind. And so uh God wants to get a message across to us, and I don't think he, he wants to confuse us in any way. Uh, I, I certainly, when I was doing my research, I, I, I read many books, and I felt that all these authors were, were very respectable, honorable men, and I didn't mean to come out with any kind of personal attack upon them, but I felt what they had to say was wrong. And so I, I, you know, stated that, and and I guess you could, some people could say maybe you know criticize them for um, uh, for some of their fanciful ideas. I, I really felt that some of them should have known better than what they had had uh, taught about these parables. Well, you say you have tried to limit your observations to the teaching of Jesus within his parables and not to pontificate your own personal views. Yes, yes. And uh, I, in, in each chapter, which is a parable, uh, where it is applicable, I have notes on the customs, uh, language notes, and I have points of the parable itself. Then I present the allegorical interpretations, and then I present my interpretation, and then I try to bring out the lesson of the parable and its application. But uh, I didn't want to get off and start rambling and chasing rabbits and preaching from them, which is what you see an awful lot. Now, when men do that, they often bring out some very excellent points, but they're really not explaining the parable. They, 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 they get off the subject kind of using a, the, a parable as a springboard to dive into to some other pool of thought. The title of the book, The Parables of Jesus Revisited, an innovative approach to understanding and interpreting the parables, and the author is William F. Beckgard. Bill, tell us how to get your book. Well, uh, the simplest way that I have found uh, as of now is to uh, go to Amazon 
and do a search on the title of the book, and it will come up. It is, uh, it is also the least expensive way to order the book. So it's Amazon. Search the parables of Jesus Revisited and it will come up. Yes. Uh-huh. Well, thank you, Bill. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you, and I appreciate your time. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle, and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic, market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Simaluka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Heart of the Bison, Neanderthals, book one, and the author is Glenn R. Scott. And Glenn joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Glenn. Hello. I want to read a few things you've written about Heart of the Bison. You say this, It's the story of how one simple Neanderthal girl dedicates her life to fulfill a dream from Mother Earth to save her clan in the face of her powerful enemy, Strong Branch, the Alrach Man. There are many books about Neanderthals, you say, but this is the only one I know of that creates a complete culture, language, and religion with ceremonies that is completely different than Cro-Magnon's. Well, this is obviously uh, an incredible amount of research that went into create this fictional story based on all of this research that you've done over a long period of time, right? Yes, several years. Why the fascination? What's the motivation here, Glenn? Well, I was interested in cavemen as a, as a small child, and the, the interest never left me. I just... Um 
love to read about Neanderthals and the Cro-Magnons and, and what happened when they came together. Now you're taking us back how far? Uh, this story begins 25,000 years ago. And we have two uh, societies, prehistoric man. Uh, tell us a little bit about each society first, then we'll get into some of the characters. Okay. <clears throat> the, the Neanderthals lived in Europe and, and uh, the Middle East from about 200,000 years ago. And uh, the Cro-Magnons came up from Africa about 40,000 years ago and, and moved into the habitat of the Neanderthals. So for some short period of time, those two societies interacted, or at least were in the same area with each other. The Neanderthals were the, uh, the apparent slow-witted um, branch of the human race. Their, their uh, intellect was not as great as Cro-Magnons and their tools, and, and society were a lot more simple. So, we, so in both societies, we have a uh, protagonist in each one. Yes, yes. In the Neanderthals, it's a young girl named Keck. In the Cro-Magnon, it's a, it's a powerful uh, shaman named Strong Branch. Well, tell us about the dreams that these two had separately and not knowing of each other. Uh, Keck was a very young Neanderthal girl, and uh, she had a dream one night uh, sent to her by Mother Earth where she had to confront uh, a large aurochs, which is a, an ancient um, progenitor of, of, of cattle. And it was leading a herd of many animals that were ripping and tearing the plants and things out of Mother Earth, and she was felt that she was directed by Mother Earth to stop them before they destroyed the land and caused her clan to die. Uh, she, in her dreams, there was a magic baby that was going to help her. Uh, Strong Branch had a, a different dream. His dream was that uh, the grandson of the chief of his tribe would run away from the tribe and hide in caves with a different kind of people and teach that kind of people all of their secrets and technology and that eventually that people would come out of the caves and cause great destruction among his people. So those are the two dreams of, of the protagonists. Now, are, is there significance to what these two different societies are called? Well, the society of the Neanderthals is called cave dwellers because they live in caves, and, and they're refer referred to by the other society as cave dwellers. The Cro-Magnons are refer referred to as tall faces by the cave dwellers because... They have high foreheads and, and long chins, and so their faces look very tall So compared to the Neanderthals who have a very low forehead and a large brow ridge and a very small chin. What is Shorik? Shorik is a, is a special calling in the Cave Dweller Society. Basically, females in Cave Dweller, cave dweller Society have a very low status. The leader of the clan is a male, and he leads the day-to-day -day activities in the hunts. The spiritual leader of the clan is a shora, is a uh, showmote, and he leads the uh, basic religious uh, rituals and things. <clears throat> the leader is dealing with with 
the current day in the life of the, of the clan, the Shomut is bringing about, bringing up things from the past, teaching the, their heritage, and that pretty much solves all their problems. But occasionally something is changing, and it and there's a needs to be a change for the future. When that happens, Mother Earth sends a a female with extra powers to direct them into the future, and this is because females are the future of the clan because they bring uh, forth the children. So this is a special calling, very rarely um, found in in the ancient uh, Neanderthal society, but in this case, uh, Kektu is called to be the Shorek, or Kek is called to be a Shorek, and they change her name to Kektu when she gets that calling. And she gives the clan a special fire. What is that about? This is a this special fire is um, a symbol from Mother Earth that Mother Earth will stand by this clan as long as they keep that fire uh, burning. And if they ever let it go out, then they lose the blessing. So the fire has to burn continuously. In the creation of the fire, uh, Kex infant's uh, sister is sacrificed to the fire so that the spirit of her sister is in that fire. Now, what is baby mating? They have two, two types of mating in the, uh, in the cave dweller society because they are very, very close to the earth and to things of the earth. They can absolutely sense when a woman is, when a female is, is um, ready to be made pregnant. And so if they mate when she is ready to be made pregnant, it's called baby mating because the result would be a baby. Mating at any other time is called play mating because it's just for play. In the society, they don't allow the females to baby mate except in the late summer so that all the children will be born in the spring, which will give them the best chance for survival. Now tell us about White Cloud. White Cloud is a member of Strong Branch's tribe. He um, is a friend of the chief, whose name is Muddy River, and his role in the in the story begins when he is out on a hunting trip and he comes across Keck by a river. And it's the first time he's seen a cave dweller, and he knocks her unconscious, and then just out of curiosity, he mates with her. The result of that uh, is that Keck gets pregnant. And with Strong Branch, when he goes back to his tribe and it's discovered that he did that, uh, or not Strong Branch, White Cloud, when he goes back to his tribe, and discovers that, and the tribe discovers he did that. Uh, Strong Branch has him castrated so that he can never mate with anybody else because he's been defiled. He becomes a, a special friend to Muddy River's son named Skyrunner, and uh, Skyrunner would be the father of the of the child in Strong Branch's dream. So Strong Branch is very much against Skyrunner trying to find some way to either have him killed or prevent him from ever mating, and White Cloud kind of stands by his side. Now, Strong Branch wants to kill all the qua- the cave dwellers. Yes, because he believes those are, those are the people that 
that the man in his dream will go to in the cave, and that 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 the man in his dream, who would be grandson of Muddy River, would teach them the art of war, and they would then come out from their caves and attack uh, Strong Branch's people. So he wants to get rid of all of the cave dwellers. He also wants to get rid of Muddy River's son, who would be father of the of the one that runs away to the caves. Uh, so, so he has a, he has a, a double role there. He wants to get rid of all the cave dwellers, and he also wants to get rid of, of Skyrunner. One of the themes in the book is about the environment. Care of the environment is key issue, even in today's world. Uh, yes, and and that's part of uh, Keck's original dream. She's dreaming of this herd of wild animals that are coming through, tearing up the environment. And actually, a lot of uh, of uh, people that study that period think that the demise of the Neanderthals came because the Cro-Magnons were so efficient at hunting that they overhunted the lands, and the Neanderthals, with their ancient tools, couldn't compete, and so they ended up dying off, not in a direct confrontation, but just in a in a situation of rarity. Now, why is the ceremony room so important? In ancient times, um, the cave paintings all happened in deep caves, and uh, it appears that only men went there. There's no artifacts in those rooms with the cave paintings that are tied to females. So those places where the paintings were would have been would have been some in some way sacred. In this book, they're very sacred because there are very important ceremonies that the men participate into that are necessary for the survival of their tribe that are done in those uh, in those uh, ceremony rooms. So in this story, Muddy River's tribe has a very, very elaborate uh, ceremony room deep in the mountain. Why do you believe that Neanderthals must have some power not shown in the fossil record? Well, for one thing, they had very, very uh, low-type hunting tools and things. They, they didn't make very good tools, and, that, and, yet, and yet they lived um, for over 150,000 years at the face of the glaciers in the Ice Age of Europe. So if you look at, at their fossils of their heads, their brains were actually larger than the brains of modern man. But they're different. Modern men's extra size of their brain occurs in the, in the frontal lobe, so modern men have the high foreheads. The Neanderthal's large brain is at the back of the brain, so they have what they call a big bun back there. Their head goes way far back. And that part of the brain is usually the ancient brain that deals with instinct and sensory perception. So my theory is that Neanderthals had an incredible uh, inherited knowledge about themselves, about their history, uh, even language and their ceremonies and, and all those kinds of things, which they wouldn't learn. They would just, as, as they grew up and their brain developed, that knowledge would just be there. Some of the things that I proposed that they may have had were, were abilities to have powerful sensory uh, perceptions. For instance, if you, if you look out on a scene, your eyes pro- project 
a huge stream of um, electrical information to your brain, and your brain is able to take that information and interpret it into the scene you see, and all the objects in that scene can be placed in a three-dimensional position. So that if you're looking out on a scene and there's a pine tree to your left, you see the pine tree to your left, you know where it is. If there's a log to your right, you know where it is. It's totally positioned by the information that your brain receives. You can do that a little bit with your eyes closed by hearing. You can tell, you can get stereophonic sounds and kind of tell which side it came from. You can do that much less with your nose. My theory about the Neanderthals is that they could place objects completely in three-dimensional space with any three of those, with any one of those three sensory things. If their eyes were closed, then they could smell something. They could tell exactly where it was and what it was, and they could differentiate between the smells of, of everything that came into them. So they could recreate a scene, an accurate scene with their nose or their ears. So if they're out hunting and there happens to be a rabbit somewhere around there, they're going to smell it or hear it or see it, and any one of those things will place it exactly where it is and they can go find it, which makes them would be very good hunters, except that their hunting tools are very archaic, and so they're not, they can find the prey, but they're not that successful. We have about a minute left, Glenn. You know, this is book one. Uh, just give us a little preview of what's coming still in the other books. In book two's uh, Spirit Fire, a warrior from the east comes to where the Neanderthals are, following an old legend of of strange people coming from caves to kill them, and they they come to the Neanderthals attempting to kill them. Um, they overpower the spirit fire, but there is a second spirit fire that was created from the first one. And Sotif, the leader of the Neanderthal group, goes to find it and ultimately saves a small remainder of his uh, people. He creates a new culture where he uses the breeding practices that people had used to create different kinds of dogs and other domestic animals to create different kinds of Neanderthals that will improve their ability to survive, and he instructs them to always hide from the Cro-Magnons because they're afraid that they'll try to kill them. In the third book, um, which happens in the year 2000, right after 9-11 attacks, the society that Sotif started 5,000 years ago has become very, very uh, sophisticated, and they have created besides the original Neanderthals, three different types of Neanderthal people. One type they call watchers, which look like normal modern people, and they infiltrate and spy on the people on the, in the world. Another they call thinkers, and they're scientists. They have large heads, and uh, if you would see them, they would look somewhat like aliens that uh, people say they have seen. And others are called gatherers. They go out into the world and, and collect uh, food and supplies for the group, and, and they were um, bred to look like large apes, which would be sort of like Bigfoot. In that society, there's two 
two battles going or there's a battle going on between two sides one side wants to kill all the Cro-Magnons before the Cro-Magnons find them because they're afraid Cro-Magnons will kill them if they find them and the other side believes that that they should remain in peace the warring side has through the watchers infiltrated all of the major terrorist groups in the world and has also infiltrated countries where uh, WMD are stored and they have work they're working a plan to get those WMDs to the terrorist groups that they've infiltrated and coordinate a massive attack all across the world that would be done by the terrorists under their direction uh, and our archaeologist Sandy Hartwell uh, discovers artifacts in Pakistan that will lead the peace-loving group to the original cave that the that Keck found, and in that cave is a key to uh, make peace. So she is racing to find that cave to stop the war, and um, whether she does it or not is part of the key to the story. That's right. Well, it's uh, obviously uh, very comprehensive and quite a story. An amazing amount of research, amazing amount of creativity. The title of the book, Heart of the Bison, Neanderthals, Book One. Author is Glenn R. Scott. Glenn, tell us how to get your book. Um, you can get the book at um, almost any online retailer, Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon.com, or at the publisher's uh, um, email at uh, our website at iUniverse.com. Also, you can find out about all the books at my website, GlennRStott.com. Thank you, Glenn. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show is unbiased, and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on 
the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, What's Cool and Cruel About School? And the author is Fred Petrella. And Fred joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Fred. Hi, how you doing? Well, there's school, and it's cool, and it can be cruel, can it? Uh, many times. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes, you've seen it all. How many years have you taught? Well, I've been in education for 38 years. And uh, I taught uh, in kindergarten through 12th grade, uh, many different grade levels, obviously. I taught mostly uh, history, a lot of other subjects. Uh, I was also principal of uh, two elementary schools, and I was also principal of uh, two high schools. So I've done it all. (laughs) Why did you decide to write this kind of a book? It deals with a character called Matt Dinky Dinkins, as he's called, uh, a likable eighth grader, and he's kind of our guide. Uh, tell us about a little bit about, in general, about the theme here, and then why you wrote it. Well, the, the theme is, is, is that you follow, you wake up, the first part of the book is you wake up, uh, he's having a, a basic dream. You know what he's doing? He's being carried off the field for kicking the winning field goal to get the New York Giants into the Super Bowl. And you hear the crowd going, Matt Dinkins, Matt Dinkins. All of a sudden, you're Dinky. And he goes, why? You wake up for school. It's time for school. And he goes, Mom. You know, and you, he sees you there, and he says, would you like to follow me through a day of school? And that's basically what happens. You follow him through a day of school of the some of the things that happens to him are sad, some are happy. He's a fun-type character. He's a good kid. Uh, he gets over the goods, the bads, and the uglies. So, uh, and I decided to write that because I would like to show kids how to deal with certain things uh, that come along in their life. And also, it's, it's also for, for teachers because in one part of the book, he does talk about what makes a good teacher and what makes a good student. So it's basically for everybody, uh, kids of his age, high school readers, adults, uh, teachers, you know, and that's basically why I wrote it, to to not only show everybody how to act at certain parts of their life, but also the, the good things that you can do to other people and help them. Well, you talk about him having a sense of humor, quick wit, a keen understanding, uh, he's the kind of kid any student would love to hang with or call a friend. So this is one of those characters that we all just kind of, did we, in school, we kind of thought they were pretty cool. I mean, we looked up to them. Yes. Yes, he is that kind of kid. You know, he's a kid that uh, even if the bad things happen to him, he gets over that. You know, he has a way of doing that. And he also helps others which right. is really nice. And he gets along with the teachers. He gets along with all his friends and, and kids. You know, uh, He's that kind of character. Now, you have some supporting characters in the book. Uh, is there any couple that just kind of stand out that uh, uh, interact really well with Dinky? Well, you know what? In one of the parts of the book, he, uh, his uh, mom and dad are, are actually going to get divorced and separated. And he talks about what you know, he f- figures it out that the strongest structure uh, in architecture is a triangle. And he 
he gets in his mind that he has to get its triangle of friends. So he does have his sister as one part of the triangle. He has a, himself, his mother, as the other part of the triangle. And he meets another friend, uh, Bobby Dipple. And he meets him in a psychiatrist's office. But he, com- he becomes the other part of the triangle. And they're the three that basically help him through this. Okay. And... Now, your book, uh, This Journey That You Will Never Forget, you say, uh, you're going to tackle a bunch of subjects, and uh, we're, we're going to talk about a couple of them just to give everybody an idea. Obviously, it's a long list here. I'll read, read them before we're over with uh, talking about this, but I, <laughs> the first one, how not to write a book report and still write it, I guess, right? Still turn yes. it in, right? Yes. And there are some rules. Dinky has rules of how to do this. Yes. What he does is he he used to be the the best. He used to be crowned as the uh, the best writer of book reports, the book report meister, and all this other stuff. But he cheated a little bit. And what he did was, uh, you know, when he he would he would look at a book, and he would have to write a book report. So what did he do? He'd copy the cover. You know, and but he would change the words a little bit, and he'd make sure one of the rules that he had is make sure you misspell a word or two, so then the teacher will think, well, you didn't copy it; it's yours. And uh, but he gets caught eventually, and uh, he—that's one of his uh, really closest friends as a teacher he meets because when she invites him, say, look, you cheated. We have to make work this out, and he has to come to her every day after school for about three weeks. And they become very, very close friends because she helps him through showing him how to research, how to do stuff, and how to do it the right, proper way. And that's really because that really is happening today, isn't it? In spite of all the problems in the schools, there are teachers who are just really dedicated that want to help somebody. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And uh, it's getting, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's just really getting harder because of the Internet. And, you know, people could just go on the Internet and copy, you know, uh, and, and put it into some, some reports yeah. and stuff. And you have to show kids not to do that. Yeah, they can research. You have to show them how to research. And she does show him that, how to research and how to change his ideas and, on how to do reports and so forth. Another topic, the school bully. Mm-hmm. That's uh, prevalent, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, well, he he meets some of the uh, unfortunate circumstances. One of the things that happened in the book is that they have an arm wrestling championship, and each, each homeroom has to nominate a student to be in an arm wrestling contest. And they realize Dinky is not an athlete, but so they, they put him in that contest to represent their homeroom to, to kind of, like, make him lose and get embarrassed. <laughs> so, you know, he gets into that contest. <laughs> and you notice that when you're walking through his room, when he's showing you his room, he has a trophy. And you, you say, we, you're not really an athlete. How did you win this trophy? Well, he, he wins the trophy. His first, his first contest or, is to wrestle this girl, arm wrestle a girl. <laughs> and he's walking <laughs> up and he's, I can't lose. I can't lose this contest. I can't be embarrassed. And he gets up there and he gets, and then finally when he's ready, go. His arms get locked at this girl, and he's starting to wrestle, and he realizes that she's pretty tough. She's starting to pin him. And he's saying, I can't lose, I can't lose. Then he finally looks over at her and sees her blonde hair and her blue eyes, and he kisses her. (laughs) And she goes, ah, you pig, and he pins her. (laughs) And then he does his chicken dance, you know, I win, I win. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, he's got to wrestle the next 
part of the contest. He wrestles the next person. He has to wrestle his or her boyfriend. <laughs> and his name is Ashtray Lloyd because he smokes cigars and stuff. But but uh, he pins uh, Dinky and, uh, you know, but he, he gets out of it because he wins, the, he wins this trophy for mm-hmm. the most unique arm wrestling possible. <laughs> so you take us uh, with him to enjoy the antics on bus rides, uh, meet his friends, walk the hallways, observe classes, meet his teachers, and even stand by him as he gives his student council speech. Yeah, he's running for president, and he's got to give a speech. And, uh, yeah, all of those things are in the book, and you follow him through that. And, uh, you know, some of the interesting stuff is the bus Olympics, he calls it. You know, the things that they do on the bus when they're going to school. To, and uh, they have fun. They have fun on, on the bus. Now, this book kind of goes along with what you're doing uh, back in the classroom, even though you're uh, not uh, 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 working teacher anymore, but you're still back in the classroom. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I'm. I, I'm doing book uh, talks uh, in the classrooms uh, for uh, you know all grade levels, and uh, I, I have English teachers involved in this too. Because one of the things I always, when I was a teacher, I always would like to have kids read, but also write. And uh, I show uh, one of the things in the book when I do the talks is that if anybody, anybody, and I get the English teachers involved in this with the kids, if anybody has a cool or cruel story that happened to them, have them write it out and, and obviously print it and then send it to telldinky at gmail.com. And they might be in the next book. So I have the kids now in, in schools writing their stories of what's cool and cruel about school. And they might be incorporated into the next book. And the English teachers love doing that because it's, it's a reading and writing assignment. What about excuses you can use for being late in class? Late uh, he's to got, class. <laughs> he, he's got them all. Believe me. Even, you know, the one that really gets him in trouble, he tells, you know, he, kids have excuses. I couldn't get my locker open. He uses them all. Couldn't get my locker open. The hallways were too crowded. I fell on the steps. Uh, uh, but the last one, he says, my pet fly died. <laughs> you know, that, that's what gets him in trouble. <laughs> yeah. I, I could see why, that's for sure. <laughs> and he had to go to the funeral, he said. <laughs> well, you also talk about serious things. Yes. Give us just a couple examples. Yeah, one of the things I did mention about the serious part of it is that uh, his parents are having a little trouble at home, and they, they, they get separated, and he has to find people, his triangle, to get him through this particular stuff. Uh, the other thing is some of the things that happen in class. You know, uh, he has trouble with math, a uh, couple of assignments, you know, and he gets the teachers to help him, and the teachers do help him through, through the problems and the things like that. So there, there's some of the, uh, you know, the serious stuff there. And he, he does like the teachers. He likes them all. And uh, he finds finds a different quality in each teacher. You know, some some are very difficult, but you know what? That's the way you get through, let's say, a math assignment or something. You know, he's got to do it, and he does it. Well, and you have a, you know, you have a part of your the book just kind of focuses on what makes a good teacher. Yes. And so yeah. through his eyes, what's a good teacher? What is a good teacher? Oh, a good teacher is, there's a series, I, there's, there's a whole series of things that I list. So he gets involved in this because he becomes, 
involved in it with one of his favorite teachers. Uh, he is in a chess uh, club, and the chess club is talking, and then they decide, you know what, let's talk about what makes a good teacher, and let's make a list. And the first list they make is, what makes a good teacher? Oh, brings candy to class, doesn't give homework, and they're kidding around that way, and they go, no, no, that's not the way it is. And then they really get into the serious stuff about it. You know, helps kids, uh, make sure, you know, the kids understand what they're doing. And there's a series of things that I actually use in my lectures to teachers, you know, on classroom management. You know, what really does make a good teacher? And, uh, you know, there's a series of things that I list there. And, of course, what makes a good student? Right. Yeah, good students are there. A whole list of their their ideas too, you know. And uh, it's it's again, it's a fun thing, you know. Is uh, like teachers are very knowledgeable of the subject, but but the characteristics of good students, you know, you always say he always does homework, things like that. Is cooperative, uh, pays attention in class, uh, you know, has a great sense of humor, works on a fault. And the last one is isn't a bully. And a school is a safe place, and that's that makes a good student. Don't be a bully. Help your friends. Of course, very important, very important part of school. Cafeteria. It's time to eat. <laughs> that's, that's one of the funniest things. Yeah, he's. Uh, this actually really happened in, in one of my schools I was at. It, it was a. Uh, it's he's in the cafeteria, and they have. Uh, this stew that they call what's what's this meat stew because <laughs> they don't know what it is <laughs> and, and one of the funniest parts is there's two funny parts one of the funniest parts is, is that uh the newest kids in the school they go what's in the stew and they go i don't know look at the absentee list <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and the other thing is there's one little girl who's in like the the fourth grade she she runs out of the cafeteria screaming because she thinks a potato rises to the top, winks at her, and goes back down into the stew. <laughs> and she panics and she runs out. <laughs> well, that that may have happened. <laughs> it, you know, not that part. But not that part. But watch, your meat, watch your meat stew. <laughs> I don't know. Look at the absentee list, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, to kind of end this on a serious note, uh, this is uh, an, not only a fun book, uh, silly at times, but you, you've got a, not only a serious side of uh, certain situations, but you're trying to send a message. Yes. Tell us the message. Very much so. The message is when you're in school, get along with everybody, work as hard as you possibly can, you know, do what you're told, the students and teachers, obviously, you know, be friendly to the kids, but be stern when you have to be, make sure they're doing assignments. You know, there's, there's the both sides to it, and that's, that's what I try to get across. And uh, when people are cooperative, and that, that's really the basic part of it, uh, is, is the cooperation that between teachers and students, and that's when kids become very, very successful. And, you know, again, now a big part of that is also the getting along with everybody else. I remember one of my schools I had uh, a motto, and the school was self-discipline and mutual respect. And that was the motto for kids and the teachers, self-discipline, mutual respect. Right. And when you do that, everybody gets along. The title of the book, What's Cool and Cruel About School? And yeah. <laughs> the author is Fred Petrella. Fred, yes, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can buy it uh, online. I have a website called uh, 
Cool.com. You can get it there. You could also get it through Amazon.com, places like that. You know, and now we're doing a marketing campaign going across the country, starting to, you know, hit certain places. So, but uh, the best way to do it is, you know, buy it online from my, you know, cool, cool school website, and uh, you'll see also that my background and all the things I talk about and teach, and also like Amazon.com, you can get it too. Thank you, Fred. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. I appreciate your help, and uh, it was great. I love talking to you, and uh, I hope everything goes well for you. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.